right. Well, good morning. Welcome to Emmaus Church Community. My name is Nathan. I'm happy to see you here. We're right in the middle of the summer. Volunteer teams are thin. We appreciate all of your help. Those of you who came early to help set up, we always have new people in the summer. We always, almost always have new people every week, uh, which is why it's so important that you reach out. Even if it's only your second Sunday, it might be somebody else's first Sunday. So make them feel right at home. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Typically, I put the, the Bible on the screen. Today's passage is a little bit longer, and I really want you to just soak in it. So I encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, get a Bible. And, um, and then somebody who grabs the Bible, Clay, look up Matthew chapter 6. Tell me what page it's on, please. And uh, we can, sorry? 678. Thanks, Benton. 678, if you are using the Bible that we're, has, that we're handing out. And then also, if there's a basket near, um, don't see them. All right. Well, forget that. If, if, uh, if you're here for the first time and would like to hand off your contact information, um, find an usher. We would be grateful to get that, and we can welcome you a little bit better. The basket volunteers on vacation today, apparently, so that didn't happen. Good. All right. Great. Well, welcome. So glad you're here. We are in a summer teaching series called Jesus Says. We're looking at a series of really simple statements of Jesus and then we're, um, that are recorded in the Gospels, and then we're reflecting on how we might apply what Jesus said 2,000 years ago to a different group of people to our lives here today. And so, and now, you're thinking that's what they always do in church, but you need to understand what we're doing, right? We are looking at what we as Christians believe to be the words of God, right? And we are asking ourselves with the help of God, how can this make a difference in my life today? So we, we are interacting with the Word of God, the words of God, not just some poem or somebody's idea. So there's this amazing privilege that we have with access to the Scriptures and this opportunity to come together this morning and apply it right here, right now. So last week, one of our board members, uh, Stephen Lindsay, and offered a reflection on a statement that Jesus made on the night he was handed over to suffering and death. The last night he spent with his disciples is the night of most intense suffering that Jesus experiences. And he says this to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. And Stephen showed how Jesus' pattern of taking regular time away for solitude and silence and prayer basically helped him to prepare to respond to an absolutely troubling situation in a way that was filled with compassion and peace. And he contrasted those who were with Jesus, who apparently didn't have the same sort of discipline set, who hadn't spent the kind of time in solitude and prayer, who instead of responding with compassion and peace, responded to a troubling situation with aggression and fear. It's a great contrast. It was as if Jesus were wide awake, as if Jesus were totally alert, clear-headed, when those who were with Jesus were dulled by grief and dulled with confusion and reacted to trouble in a way that was very different from the trouble, the way that Jesus reacted to it. It was a challenging teaching from Stephen on an even more challenging statement from Jesus. 
Uh, Several months ago when we put this series together, I felt drawn to preach on a very similar statement to the statement that Stephen preached on. And then when the schedule lined up and Stephen's week lined up right next to my week, I considered moving what I was going to say to another time because what Stephen preached on, what I want to preach on, feels to us like it's almost the same thing. It's very synonymous. So my word and Stephen's word are very similar. Stephen's word was, let not your hearts be troubled. And the word I want to talk about today is, when Jesus says, don't worry, almost sounds to our ears like the same kind of instruction from Jesus. But instead of splitting them up, we decided to keep them together two weeks in a row for this simple reason. We need help with this. Okay? We, we need to actually experience some transformation in our lives in the area of worry, anxiety, and stress. We have got to make some kind of progress, and this is possible if the Bible is true, to a point where we are not just so washed away by any kind of stressful, troubling situation. Some of you have allowed the gospel to penetrate your lives very deeply in terms of like stewardship of your finances or your commitment to, um, to faithfulness to your spouse or something like that. But very few of us, frankly, have allowed the gospel to penetrate our lives on the area of how we feel emotionally during the day, or how we uh, confront troubling situations or worrisome situations. Most of us worry, and most of us worry a lot. I was really grateful for Stephen's message. I thought it was solid. I'm very excited to preach on the same kind of thing this morning, uh, because I believe that the word from the Lord today is going to free some people up in this area. So may God bless the preaching of his word right here and right now. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. We'll look at verse 25 through 34, and I hope you'll just keep this open before you. It's the first gospel, Matthew chapter 6, part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is this big, long collection of teachings of Jesus, recorded by Matthew, who's one of Jesus' followers, his disciples. Now, the teaching that we're going to focus on starts in verse 25. It's important whenever a passage starts with the word therefore, that you look ahead a little bit. Here's where Jesus is coming from. He's essentially made the assertion to those who are listening to him that you can only serve one master. It's either God or money is how Jesus boils it down, which is really interesting. So I'm imagining being there. I'm imagining hearing Jesus say, you can either serve God or money. And I'm imagining myself saying, well, I want to serve God. But then I'm imagining myself going, but then what about, what about all that other stuff? Like, what about my needs? And what about my family? And what about my house? And what about my job? If I'm just going to serve God and I can't serve money, it seems like most of our lives kind of built around serving our jobs, our needs, and stuff like that. So I'm imagining myself in that situation. I invite you to imagine yourself in that situation. It's into that situation that Jesus says this. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They they do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor and spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon who was the king of Israel at the pinnacle, the super wealthy, they would have thought, oh my gosh, not even Solomon? Not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed as one of these. 
If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things. The word there for pagans that Jesus uses just means those who don't have a relationship with Yahweh. Those who have no exposure to the story we've been telling about who God is and what God's like. People who don't know God act this way. Right? But he says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble on its own. Here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to uh, explain one reason why I think worry is an issue for us, especially those of us here, our culture. Secondly, I want to try to expose two totally popular but absolutely counterfeit solutions to the problem of worry. These are themes that we read and hear often in modern literature as common cures for the problem of anxiety or worry, and they sound good. They're totally hollow. They're empty. They carry no weight. They are not helpful. They lead you down the wrong road. They fail to help because they fail to address the real issue, and they seek instead only to medicate the symptoms. I'm kind of frustrated about those, actually. And then, and secondly, or thirdly, I want to try to explain three ways that we can actually obey Jesus' instruction. And that's what it is. It's not a suggestion. It's his instruction and his command, essentially, to not worry so that we can ultimately and hopefully be free from worry. All right? That's where we're headed. Here we go. Why is worry such a problem for you? Why is worry such a problem for me? One reason... I think it's the main reason is that we think we're in control, right? We typically believe that if we work harder, if we, if we research more deeply, if we make better decisions, if we plan better, that we will make fewer mistakes, we'll experience less pain, things will go better for us, we'll experience success as we define it, and everything will be okay. We think we're in control. And it's really easy to think that we're in control. It's easy to believe that we're in control because so much of our life around us seems to reinforce the fact that we are in control. And in some degree, we are in control. I mean, we live in a relatively free culture, highly customizable all the time. We have tons of choices. I mean, just tons of choices. You do what you want, when you want it, the way you want to do it. That's the way we do it here. I got a new computer recently, so I've been customizing it. This amazing piece of machinery is built so that I can make it work for me exactly the way I want it to work. There's this little button on the upper, like one of those drop-down menus, and it's on every program. You hit it, and it drops down, and it says preferences, right? So I've been setting the preferences for my, my new machine. I changed the highlighting color from that boring blue to orange. It's fantastic. Everything's orange when I highlight it. I love it. I've been customizing the way my email works. I've been changing the sounds that the computer makes, changing the way it, it looks, the pictures. I even made a custom case for my new computer out of a piece of wool from the 1960s because I didn't like any of the other cases I was finding in stores. And so I'm in control, so I made my own. Thank you very much, right? Because that's the way we do it. Because it's up to me. I'm in control. These are just little things, but they're examples of a reality that extends just to almost every part of our life. We are in control. 
because I often have so many choices, because I usually have the power to do the things I want to do them, I end up living as though the bad stuff that has hit my life is my fault. I should have planned better. I should have made a different decision. I should have seen that coming. There's something I should have been able to do about it. And I also live as though the good stuff that's in my life is to my credit. It's because I went to school. It's because I made this great decision. It's because I made the right investment. It's because I did the right thing, right? I often live as though I'm in control. Most of the time, I actually am in control, and there are all these parts of my life that seem to reinforce that illusion, right? I control my entertainment. I buy the food I want. I cook it the way I want to cook it. I customize my cell phone. I'm pretty much in control of my schedule. I even have three little people that live in my house with me, and I control their lives. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm controlling humans. It's awesome. And then, of course, you know, you, you mix into this, this, Challenge, it's complicated because you do have responsibilities. So there are things like, this is my job. This is my role. I, I need to fix this. I need to provide this. I need to wash this. I need to explain this. I need to do this. And so we think we're in control. And a lot of the time, in some sense, we actually are in control. But then here's the trouble. Okay, here's the trouble. Deep down, we know we're not in control. And that's why we worry That's why we worry. We think we're in control. Deep down, we know we're not in control. And so we think, man, what if I I didn't work hard enough? What if I didn't make the right decision? What if I should have vaccinated my kids? What if I shouldn't have vaccinated my kids? What if I should have sold that then? Or maybe I shouldn't have sold that. There's this constant, what if, what if, what if? There's a new book called Worrying by a guy named Francis O'Gorman, and he argues that worry is only possible in a world of choices, which is interesting. I've got to figure this out. I've got to make the right decision. It's up to me. It's my deal. So all day long, I live like I'm in control, but late at night, When the technology goes away, when the information goes away, when the tools go away, and it's just me in the dark, deep in my soul, I know I'm not in control. And so I worry, and I worry a lot. I worry because I think I'm in control. I think I should be in in control. There's got to be something I can do, something more I can do. And then my four-year-old gets diagnosed with leukemia two years after we got rid of all the refined sugar and all the processed foods in our house. You know, so our kids would be really healthy. So our kids would have really good immune systems. (laughs) And it just becomes dreadfully clear in a moment. Bro, you're not in control, right? I am not in control. I've noticed that for those for whom it's really obvious to them and to others that they have very few choices and very little control and they know it, I've noticed they don't seem to worry too much. I think of other cultures I've visited where the poverty level is super, super low. They don't seem to have any choices. And they're just so free and peaceful. And then I've noticed that it's often those who seem to have unlimited choices, power at their fingertips, who worry a lot. Everything seems to be dialed in for them. Everything seems to be just perfectly arranged for them except they're worrying so much. I have a good friend who is uh, building a $13 million home in Santa Barbara for a guy who does some kind of international banking work. 
He told me that they just spent $700,000 on windows for this house. And the guy who's building the house is a controller. He's used to being in control. He calls the shots. It doesn't matter if this huge construction company does it this way. This is his house, so they're going to do it his way. He makes all the decisions. He makes all the, it's on his terms. My friend says the project is going to take him two and a half years because this guy is just micromanaging everything. He is in control. And then my friend told me this. They installed for his exterior doors, get this, nine-inch thick Teflon bulletproof doors that bolt in four directions into the frame of the house. Question, why does he want nine-inch thick Teflon doors? Because he's worried. That's right. Because he's worried, right? Why is he worried? Because he thinks he's in control. But deep down, he knows he's not. Right? He knows he's not. And so he and a thousand other people like him, except with probably normal front doors, right? they buy piles and piles of self-help books written by untested, self-proclaimed gurus promising secrets to help you live this stress-free, worry-free life, which of course sounds wonderful. Who doesn't want to live a stress-free, worry-free life? But to a significant degree, the solutions being offered are counterfeits. They don't actually help because they either mask the problem or they ignore the reason that we actually worry. And my interest isn't to you know, rail on modern writers' advice about dealing with worry, but my hope is to help us better understand what the church has taught that Jesus meant when he said, do not worry. So let's quickly try to expose a couple counterfeit solutions to the problem of worry. When, in other words, when Jesus says, don't worry, here's two things he doesn't mean. Here's two things he's not saying. First, he is not calling us to some kind of unrealistic optimism, okay? He's not telling you to believe that everything is fine, right? The reality is that there are things happening in your life which are actually worrisome. They are not fine. If they continue to go down the path they appear to be headed, trouble awaits. That's truth, right? Anyone who asks you to believe otherwise is asking you to pretend and that's not what Jesus is doing. He's not asking you to pretend. Everything's not fine. That's not what Jesus means when he says, don't worry. He's not saying pretend that everything's fine. He's not asking you to say, you know what, I'm worried, or I'm not worried because I just know that actually everything's just fine. Secondly, Jesus is not calling us to some kind of emotional detachment. In other words, he's not calling you to essentially say, I don't care about that which is what you read a lot in modern stuff on anxiety, right? So much of the advice I hear is basically encouraging worriers to care less. When Jesus says, don't worry, he's not telling us to distance ourselves. He's not telling us to insulate ourselves. He's not telling us to deal with worrisome situations by essentially saying, I don't care. I mean, talk about avoiding the real issue and dealing only with a symptom. The solution to the problem of worry is not ungrounded optimism. It is not emotional detachment because everything isn't fine. It's broken and you should care about it because that's what love does, right? So both this flippant, dishonest, everything is fine attitude and a selfish, 
defensive, I'm going to block out everything that's not comfortable in my life, sort of I don't care strategy of dealing with worry, they both fail. One, is, one isn't honest and one isn't true. Everything's not fine and you actually do care. And so you need to walk past the pseudo-solutions to worry and you need to wade into the often painful deep waters of reality in order to do what Jesus actually tells us to do, which is to stop worrying, right? Here's how we do that. Here are three ways I think we can actually obey Jesus' teaching to not worry. And please know, there's no quick fix here, and if you have a personality that tends to worry, this will be especially difficult. If you have a track record of worrying for 15, 20, 30 years, it's going to take you a while to break out of this pattern. But there are three things, it's probably more, I'm going to share three things you can do when faced with worrisome situations that will, over time, free you from the paralysis of worry. And by the way, I want you to know that these three points are just my rephrasing of what ancient Christian writers have said in their sermons on the passage that we read on the teaching of Jesus. Um, why are their ideas better, their ideas on dealing with worry, better than most modern writers' ideas? I would simply say because Christians in the first few centuries of the church were applying the teachings of Jesus to their lives in situations that were in most cases much more difficult than the situations that we try to apply the teachings of Jesus to in, in our lives, in most cases. In other words, most of the writers that I read in preparation for this sermon suffered seriously and severely for their faith. That was just the level of adversity in which they were called to follow Christ. We're talking about like somebody knocks on your door and he's an anti-Christian state-sponsored soldier and he takes one of your children. And that's what they're being asked to not worry about. Okay, So I, I'm very interested in their perspective on this. And then secondly, when I was going through a deep season of intense worry, I was applying these kinds of things, and they were actually helping me, okay? So I hope that they will help you. First, three things you can do. First, remember, you're not in control. Jesus says, can you, by worrying about food, and food is not the point. You could replace food with any basic need. Could you, by worrying, add moments to your life? In other words, Jesus is saying, you're not in control. Or to put it in the positive, worrying isn't going to help you. Worrying doesn't do any good. In other words, you're not going to be able to generate life by worrying. They're antithetical. They don't help. It, one erodes the other, right? So... Is Jesus saying don't work hard? Is Jesus saying don't prepare? Is Jesus saying don't strategize? Is Jesus saying don't advocate for others? No, that's not what he's saying. He doesn't say that at all. He's simply saying don't worry, okay? Um, worry is a misuse of your imagination. When I was in high school, my pastor said that and it stuck with me. Worry is a misuse of your imagination. This is a really important distinction. I hope you'll write it down. Jesus isn't saying, don't put forth effort. He's not saying, just sit on the couch. He's saying, don't waste effort imagining all the things you could have done. This is not an anti-effort message. This is not a don't try, don't strategize, don't think about stuff effort. It's a don't waste your effort in areas and in ways that are not going to help. Imagining all the things you could have done. All of the th as though you're in control of the future, which you're absolutely not. A fourth century leader named John Chrysostom, 
who was repeatedly exiled for speaking against the power structure of his time. He said this. He said, it's clear that it is not our diligence, but it's the providence of God, even where we seem to be active, that finally accompanies everything. In other words, work hard. Give your whole life, but work hard and give with the knowledge that God is going to use you. Yes, that's his plan, but ultimately it's not up to you. Okay. You are not called to fix this problem. God is the provider. God is the provider. So when you begin to worry, remember, ultimately, I'm not in control. Secondly, live in the moment. Not for the moment, but live in the, be present. Be here now. Don't live in the imagined future. When I catch myself spiraling into some big worry binge, I need to call myself back and realize I have completely left this place. I am existing in some place that does not exist. I have fabricated some future story, some possible reality, and it's bad, and I'm living there as though it's real, and it's actually not. I'm playing out some terrible story, imagining that's what's going to happen to me. I need to stop. I need to stop. I need to be here now. I need to be in the moment, right here in the present. I need to come back here. I need to leave the imagined future and come back to what's real. And I need to be with God right here and right now. I need to commune with the God who knows what's going on. I need to be with the God who's heard the cries of my heart. I need to be with the good God who loves me right where I am. Because friends, this is the only place I can encounter God is right here. I'm not in the future yet. That's a make-believe reality for me. But I'm here right now, and so is God. So God will, right here and right now, enable me, prepare me, equip me, fill me to handle the future, whatever it takes. But I need to receive that equipping and that filling and that assurance and that truth the only place I can, which is right here, right now. Therefore, I must shut that thing down where I'm living in the future, and I must come back to here and live right now. Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself, which is so interesting. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let me paraphrase what Augustine, who's another fourth century Christian, wrote about that. He basically says, hard things will happen. Real needs will arise. Don't add to these real challenges the pointless act of worrying. You've got so much energy to spend... Spend it where it matters. Stop wasting that energy on something that is absolutely futile. I'll paraphrase that. Jesus isn't saying there won't be trouble. In fact, he says the opposite. He says there will be trouble. But he says spend your energy acting on today's challenges instead of wasting your time imagining uh, tomorrow's challenges. So remember, you're not in control. Live in the present. That's the one that's really helped me. Living in the present, taking in all of the beauty of the moment, even when many things seem to be pointing towards a very scary, disastrous, terrifying end. Bringing myself back, living in the moment. The third thing, trust God. Trust God. I just said that, and a lot of you thought, I've heard that a thousand times. I've heard that a thousand times. If you're struggling with worry, you need to hear it again. You need to hear it again. Trust God. 
place your faith in God, not in yourself. Did you notice how Jesus refers to his listeners? He only refers to them in one way in this passage. Did you hear what he said? He said, oh, you of little faith. Sometimes I come to, passage, uh, to phrases like that and I just read right over them. I think, oh, that's kind of Bible language. That just sort of feels like a line out of a movie to me. I imagine almost a British accent or something. But I need to rest there. I need to stay with that for a second. Oh, you of little faith, that's so helpful. Why is that helpful? Because it helps reveal to me the problem. What's the problem? I have placed my faith in me. I have not placed my faith in God. Why is that helpful? Because now I know what to do. Right? I'll place my faith in Jesus now. I will, I will choose, I'll make the choice to trust God. It's like Christianity 101 and Christianity 101. I mean, it just it continues to be the challenge of, of a practical walking out of a relationship with Jesus. Fourth century pastor John Chrysostom, he points out the unusual emphasis in this passage on the word you. And it's the particular, it's the specific. It's like you, Nick. It's like you, Vance, not the corporate you, which is really unusual. Jesus normally talks to crowds. Here he's talking to the individual. He says you or your 12 times in this passage. And um, Chrysostom says this is to highlight the value that Jesus places on your life, on your specific and individual life. This is what he says. This is Chrysostom. The force of the emphasis is on you to indicate covertly how great is the value set upon your personal existence and the concern that God shows for you in particular. It is as though Jesus were saying, you to whom he gave a soul, you to whom he fashioned or for whom he fashioned a body, you for whose sake he made everything in creation, you for whose sake he sent the prophets and gave the law and wrought those innumerable good works and for whose sake he gave up his only son. It's for you, right? Friends, the goal, the goal, put this in your notes, the goal of Jesus' teaching against worry is not simply to stop worrying. The goal of this teaching is to recognize the truth and then live in it. See? It's to recognize the truth. And then one of the byproducts then is that I'll be free from worry. When we worry, when we worry, we forget that God's in control. When we worry, we are living in some imagined future. And when we worry, we lose sight of the truth of how much God loves us. We can break free from worry by remembering, I'm not in control, by choosing to live in the present moment and by trusting in the God who loves us. Amen? Amen. I want to encourage you this week um, every day for a week to pray this prayer. And some of you are in really intense, fierce battles. You'll need to pray it a couple of times a day. Maybe you need to set an alarm on your phone and pray it every hour of the week. But I want to encourage you to take a step, a practical step, into believing the truth and living into it within the greater context of this idea of worry. Here's the prayer. God, in your mercy, help me to remember the truth. You're wiser than me. 
You're stronger than me. And you're good. Help me to remember what's true. You're wiser than me. You know better than I do. You're stronger than me. You are better able to fix this than I am. And you're good. Let me pray. Pray for us for a minute. I pray, Lord, you'd free us by your truth, your true word. You'd free us so that we can seek first your kingdom and its righteousness and that all the other things that we are worried about that concern us, many of which are legitimately worrisome things and some of which are just not, but that all of these other things that concern us could be placed on another level and we could trust. You're going to provide. You're going to enable. You're going to equip. Please, Lord, on a real practical level, bring a deeper sense of freedom to us. Freedom from the things that tie us up and rob us of joy and peace. May we live not in some sort of like, I don't care, everything's fine, but in a real deep recognition of the hardcore reality of the brokenness of life and yet still filled with a sense of joy because of our trust in you. I pray for your grace in this area, Lord. We could be free from worry. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.